trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. You know, the battle for your mind, it's a, it's a real thing. I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to offer what I hope will be some nutritious food for thought. What you do with it, well, that's really up to you. Although I, I will admit, I'll be kind of disappointed if it turns into a food fight. I'm just saying. Very disappointed. Nonetheless, glad you could join us today. Our program is brought to you by great sponsors like MonticelloCollege.org, LifesavingFood.com, and the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. So, where to begin today? You know, I thought, to, I, I, I know there are so many choices, and, and there's so much information. I thought, wouldn't it be fun if we just spent some time talking about that time when UFOs shut down and disabled U.S. nuclear missile sites? Wouldn't that be cool? Huh? Huh? But then I think, no, that's, that's really not the focus of of what this program is about. It's interesting, to put it mildly. It's pretty sensational. But how does it actually improve your life? I'm not saying it's a bad thing if you want to pursue that. I'm just saying, to get a feel of what's going on around us, you've got to be willing to do your own digging. You can't just be content to repeat what other people have said. I Actually, I saw something earlier today to, to kind of illustrate this, and hopefully... I don't want this to come off as condescending, like, well, you know, if you think about things, you know, from this lofty, thinner air where I reside, you know, then uh, somehow you're going to you're going to see things differently. It's more of a matter of a lot of times we aren't aware of what we don't know. So it's just easier to follow the path of least resistance. Um, Tom Cranawitter is one of my friends on Facebook, and this guy is uh, one of my favorite philosophers, too just because he can distill some real wisdom into very, very few words. And this is something that he posted recently that I thought was worth sharing. He says, many people are familiar with Plato's allegory of the cave. If you're not, you can Google it. It's, it's a pretty easy read. The, the gist of what, what Plato's allegory is, is that when it comes to knowledge, many of us are like prisoners who are in a cave chained down and we're watching flickering images on the wall now he was talking about basically a fire which cast light and people who were holding up puppets or otherwise doing shadow puppets that uh, that would represent you know a show for the people who were prisoners down there in the cave and for many of the prisoners what they see is just simply these flickering images on the wall isn't it interesting that he used that as as his analogy just considering what we sit around and watch, you know, on a daily basis. I thought that was kind of fascinating. But at some point, some of those prisoners find their way up and out of the cave. And when they get out of the cave, first of all, their eyes are, are very, you know, they're hurting because of the sunlight, so it's very painful. Oh, my goodness, what is this? I'm emerging into sunlight. And they start to look around them, and they realize there's an entire world that I was not even aware of. Because all I thought about reality was just those flickering shapes on the wall along with my fellow prisoners. That's all we ever really understood until we undertook the effort to climb out of that cave 
and to, to stand in the light. And of course, once you've done that, if you're a good person, you're going to feel an obligation to go back and to help your fellow prisoners find their way up out of the cave to the light. So in a nutshell, that's, uh, that's more or less Plato's allegory of the cave. Now, Tom Cranowitter says, look, a lot of people are familiar with the allegory, but what a lot of people don't realize is that they are in the cave. Many people are in the cave right now, today, at this moment. And of the many people in the cave, very few, by which he means almost none, are aware that they're in the cave. In fact, just the opposite. They think they're rebels. They think they are independent minds, free from the establishment, free from the orthodoxy. They think they are free thinkers. They think they departed the cave and they're standing in the sunlight, seeing with their own eyes what things truly are. But he says they're completely unaware that where they are now intellectually required little work and no real risk, unlike Socrates, who was lawfully executed for his thoughts. And they almost don't notice that the opinions they hold are the very same opinions offered by higher education, the media, the chattering political class, big crony corporations, cultural influencers, and all the authoritative voices they admire. They think they're like Socrates when really they're the opposite of Socrates. And Tom Cranowitter asks the question, is that comedy or tragedy or both? So the goal here is not to make you feel like, you know, you are uh, dumber than you thought you were, but simply to recognize that uh, each of us at some point has to be willing to admit that's a subject that's over my head or that's something that I don't know, which is not a bad thing. It's okay to be ignorant if you can at least say, okay, I don't know the answer to that, but I'm willing to look deeper into the matter. And that's the key. Are you willing to take the action? Are you willing to become better informed? Because what Tom Cranowitter is pointing out is if you have not paid the price, if you haven't done the, home, the, the hard work and homework of owning your own worldview, there's a really good chance that maybe you're dependent on what other people are telling you. Okay, now why am I saying this? Why am I sharing this with you? Why am I telling you what to think? Oh, actually, that's the point. I'm not here to tell you what to think. It's not my prerogative. It's not my prerogative to tell you, you know, you have to think this way or you're a bad person. And at the risk of sounding like, you know, someone who has the answers here, I don't have all the answers, but I I can honestly say I have put in the hard work of climbing out of the cave and having a look around. And I'm happy to report there is a whole world out there waiting to be discovered. I'm in the process of discovering it right now. And I've returned to the cave numerous times to invite people to please come and consider for themselves if there isn't something more to to see. Now, I'm talking about this in the context of Maybe there's another way to look at uh, this particular situation or this particular conflict that goes beyond rah, rah, red state, rah, rah, blue state. Because that's the rut where a lot of people get stuck. So in the course of today's show, we're going to have a couple of different uh, couple of different things to talk about. We're going to talk about why sometimes being a quitter is actually a good thing. 
And if you've been finding yourself overwhelmed or feeling hopeless from all the division around us, this is a message I think you're going to really appreciate. We'll talk about uh, the path of least resistance and why our lives are too important to be ruled by political differences. Got a fascinating story here about, uh, I, I don't know if you remember when cochlear implants came out. I think it was 1990 when they were actually approved by the FDA as a way of helping the hearing impaired, helping the deaf hear where they'd never heard before. Groundbreaking stuff. I think this became pretty common knowledge after Rush Limbaugh went stone deaf and then had cochlear implants done and was able to resume his, his hosting duties. Did you realize, though, that there were people who actually fought against that way to help the deaf hear? And it was part of, it was groups that were part of deaf culture. And they felt like, hey, this is genocidal. You're trying to wipe out our identity. You're trying to, you're trying to pretend like having five senses is better than having four senses. Maybe that's just part and parcel for identity politics, but I've got a fascinating story I'll be sharing with you in the course of today's show that talks about this as well. I think we're going to start today, though, with uh, what, what would happen if we looked around us and recognize that there was actually a lot of good going on and there could be more of that good if government would simply get out of the way for us. Got a great article from John Stossel. I'll share that coming up in just a few moments. As we go to break, a quick note here from my sponsor, lifesavingfood.com. Look, uh, the, 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 there's no avoiding the facts. Prices are going up. You see it in the grocery store. You're going to see it in food storage as well. There's still time to stock up. There are still great deals to be had. And my listeners still get a remarkable discount if they purchase their food storage through lifesavingfood.com. Go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. Click on the sponsor links. You'll find one that takes you directly to lifesavingfood.com. And if it's something that's a priority to you, consider acting sooner than later. I think we're at a point right now where we're seeing some breakdowns in the supply chain. And if there's something that you think you're going to need or that you know you're going to be needing in the next year that you would like to have on hand, this is probably the time to go ahead and get it. And then enjoy the peace of mind of knowing that you've got it. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, just like that, we are back. Thanks again for being part of our growing audience of wrong thinkers. Wherever you happen to be catching the show. You know, good news seems to be in short supply these days, but I've got a nice reality check from John Stossel. Come to count on this guy for uh, for being able to look at things from just a slightly different angle that uh, that really brings uh, some perspective, some needed perspective. And Stossel points out that there would be a lot more good news in our lives if government would simply get out of the way when innovators are working to improve our lives. He says, there's so much negative news these days that I was glad to see a new podcast, American Optimist, features good things that are coming. Now, it's hosted by Palantir founder and venture capitalist Joe Lonsdale. 
And he interviews entrepreneurs like Sal Churi, who funds companies like Icon, which found a way to 3D print homes in just one day. It's a very cool process to watch, by the way, and he has a link to the video in this uh, story, which you'll find in the show notes at thebryanhideshow.com. Now, Stossel says, fast home building is such a good thing for poor people who want an affordable house. But unfortunately, Sal Churi has to struggle to get past government's rigid zoning and safety regulations. In fact, Lonsdale says it's actually impossible to do 3D printing of homes with modern technology because government regulation is making it impossible. Now, Stossel tells him, hey, that infuriates me. I keep seeing these wonderful new things we can't have because of regulations that don't matter. And Lonsdale replies, we'd probably have twice as big of an economy if we didn't have bad regulations. So if innovators finally do get past the regulators, we'll get lots of cool things. Now, maybe some of this is wishful thinking, but listen to this list. People predicted flying cars for years. Now it may actually happen because Lonsdale's friend, Paul Ciara, Pinterest's co-founder, invested in Joby Aviation, which built a small helicopter that looks like a flying car, and he hopes it'll be used as, a, as an air taxi. Now, Lonsdale says it's about 100 times quieter than a helicopter, goes about 200 miles on a charge, safer, much quieter, and the idea is to use this as a commuting vehicle. In fact, he says, I'm pretty excited as we start to scale this out. Another Lonsdale friend is Elon Musk, whose boring company, yes, you heard that correct, hopes to create faster ways to move traffic by building tunnels. But again, it's hard to get such new transportation past the bureaucrats' rules. Digging tunnels today actually often costs more and takes longer, even though construction equipment is much better. Lonsdale says the EPA is going to insist that you do these studies that take four or five years. It's almost like they delight in delaying you. Well, of course they do. That's their job, right? Stossel says Musk is the rare entrepreneur who triumphs over regulations, sometimes by ignoring them. Now, thankfully, in new fields like neurotechnology, innovators sometimes escape stupid rules because regulators don't understand what they're doing. Musk's company, Neuralink, invented technology that lets us control things with our minds. He says on our Stossel, our Stossel TV video on Lonsdale includes a Neuralink video clip showing a monkey playing a video game just by thinking. And soon this technology could help paralyzed people do new things. It could even someday help us communicate without speaking. Th- without speaking rather. We'll just think to each other. I know, I'm seeing the downside of that too, especially if you got a little temper going on there. Now, Lonsdale's podcast also includes Rick Klausner, a scientist who founded Grail, which designed a blood test that detects 50 types of cancer. But it's not available to us yet because the Federal Trade Commission blocked a merger with the company that would be selling it. Lonsdale complains this could be saving over a 1,000 lives a month right now by detecting early cancers. He interviews Maureen Hillenmeyer, founder of Hexagon Bio, which turns fungi into drugs that fight cancer. But of course, those drugs may need 10 years to get approval from the Food and Drug Administration. And Lonsdale says it definitely does not need to be 10 years. 
Competition of ideas is very important. And he says, when I'm in charge of the federal government, I'm going to have the FDA compete against itself and have multiple competing en- and competing agencies. Now, Stossel says, will, will Lonsdale actually be in charge of the government? Probably not. Would competition make bu- bureaucrats less slow and sleepy? Well, the answer there is probably yes. So Lonsdale says, we are living in one of the most exciting times. The quality of life we have, even during COVID, is so much higher than anything humanity experienced, and it's only going to get better. And John Stossel says, I'm glad such optimists exist. Okay, I would have to agree. Yeah, I'm glad that such optimists exist as well. But in order to get to that point where there's there's not this uh, stifling effect, a giant wet blanket being thrown over the top of every innovation, we've got to adjust our thinking. And part of this comes back to people like you and me. I learned about something called permissionless innovation a few years ago. And it's one of those concepts that I'm just, I'm praying will catch on. Because right now, if you have something truly innovative, and it could be, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use the example of like Uber or one of the ride-sharing services. There's a big regulatory battle that had to be fought because there were existing companies, taxi companies to be specific, who paid big money to the government. We'll take New York City, for example, in order to have their taxi medallions. This is their permission, their, their official badge, if you will, that they have permission to operate from the government. And then along comes this disruptive, innovative technology. Well, what if we were able to come up with an app that allowed you to call up someone driving their own private vehicle who happened to be near you and you could get a ride from them? And this app would connect you with them and have a picture of them in their car so you know what you're looking for. They would have a picture of you so that they know what they're looking for. You agree to meet up. They agree to take you where you need to go. You pay them. It's all done electronically. Amazing. I say this because I've used Rideshare a lot in the last few years, and it's, it's one of the greatest things ever if you're in a city where you don't know your way around. So much easier than renting a car. So much easier than trying to find parking. So much easier than trying to navigate, you know, again, in unfamiliar territory. But isn't it curious how hard various states and municipalities fought that ride-sharing technology? They've come to kind of an uneasy, you know, truce with it. Well, as long as we can tax you and, you know, make some money off it, we want our cut, you know. Okay, well, then, like the mafia, they'll, they'll need their cut in order for you to, to do business. But there's so much innovation out there. And what if the default setting was, of course, as long as you're not harming other people, like measurably harming other people, <clears throat> as long as you're not defrauding them or otherwise harming their property, you should be free to innovate and bring it forward and let the market decide, is this something that we want or not? But instead, we've kind of flipped that on its head to where, well, we've got to go and ask permission, and this regulatory agency or that regulatory agency is going to have to conduct studies and push a bunch of paper around, and then once they're satisfied that, okay, this could be viable, maybe you can pay them for permission to implement your great idea. It's cumbersome. It's, it's needless 
And, and the saddest truth of all is it really doesn't make you any safer. It's not protecting you from potential fraud or, you know, bad actors in the market. What's the saying? Caveat emptor. Let the buyer beware. That's the idea that needs to rule the free market. You might find some people who, uh, you know, will take advantage and will otherwise, you know, cut corners or be slipshod in the way they do things. But the market won't support such people. And they'll quickly change their ways or they'll go out of business. But what we don't need is another layer of government bureaucracy. Check out the link to Stossel's article. It's in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I just want to give a quick shout out here to the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, located in St. George, Utah. So many people moving to the the beehive state i'm also seeing it where i live in southern idaho in fact i saw an article on on ksl yesterday saying that uh, home prices have actually gone up in utah so much that it's it's just astonishing the people who track these things are are their their jaws are hanging open in awe at how much real estate prices have have gone up because of this exodus of people coming to the intermountain west and they noted that Utah is second only to Idaho in terms of, you know, how much those property values have increased. So if you are moving to the great state of Utah and you find a home that you want to, to purchase, you're not going to have the option of sitting around, you know, trying to make up your mind or otherwise, you know, dilly-dallying trying to, to get your financing in order. If it's a desirable home, it's going to get snapped up Quickly, which means you need your home loan without delay, which which means you need Patriot Home Mortgage and especially the Heather Turner team. Heather's NMLS ID is 715386. Of course, Patriot Home Mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender. You can call her at 435-703-4522. So one of the things that I have noticed primarily about myself is that I take a lot of things for granted. And it's partly because... I often don't have a clear understanding of, for instance, where stuff comes from. And this is very true, by the way, of people in positions of power as well, who think they can run society by their command. Politicians, you know, you you think you have an understanding of where stuff comes from, and that's not necessarily the case. My friend Ruben sent me an article the other day. This is from ZeroHedge.com. Where stuff comes from. And this was actually from the Doomberg Substack. And it starts with a quote from El Gato Malo that says, This dovetails in sinister fashion with the basic idea that any sufficiently advanced technology cannot be distinguished from magic. Highly evolved capitalism becomes such a technology that, and the largesse and plenty it produces gets mistaken for, the pro- for a property of the universe rather than a made thing, a thing that must be created rather than simply reaped. Now, this article really goes down an interesting path. 
And it says, modern society is awash in stuff. There's stuff at the grocery store, at the hardware store, at Amazon, at eBay. We eat stuff, we wear stuff, we buy stuff, and store stuff. Click some buttons, swipe a card, tap a phone, and presto, stuff appears like magic. At least for now. Now, we are a carbon-based species. Carbon forms the foundations of our bodies and the external world we experience. Almost everything we touch is carbon-based. In fact, the author here says, as I type this, I'm sitting on a couch made predominantly from foamed polyurethane, my feet resting on a carpet made from synthetic nylon. I just sipped water from a bottle made of polyethylene. Ugh, how do you even say it? Terephthalate? Anyway, <clears throat> which I then placed on a coffee table made of wood. So not only is our stuff mostly based on carbon, but the energy required to manipulate materials to make stuff comes predominantly from carbon-based feedstocks as well. So while not all stuff is based itself on carbon, copper wires made of copper, after all, but we can't make use of it without first extracting energy from carbon fuels. In other words, we can't mine copper without carbon. Those excavators, dump trucks, and bulldozers aren't going to run themselves. Since energy is life, mastering the chemistry of carbon and harnessing the energy of stuff to make other stuff is core to the human endeavor. So they set out to develop a very grossly simplified mental model. And it starts with picturing a four-rung ladder. Now, because of gravity, it takes energy to climb a ladder. But a fall from, to fall from one is actually kind of a spontaneous event. You let go of your grip, and you'll soon be introducing yourself to the ground. In a way, interchanging between chemical compounds is analogous to our ladder. Sometimes going from one chemical compound to another releases energy, just like falling down the ladder. Whereas going in the opposite direction requires putting energy in, like climbing the ladder. Just replace the word gravity with enthalpy, and you can begin to sound scientific. Now, at the top rung of our ladder sits methane, more commonly known as natural gas. Among the hydrocarbons, methane has the most embedded energy. Way down below, on the ground, sits carbon dioxide. When you burn methane fully, you react it with oxygen and produce CO2 and water as products. That reaction gives off an enormous amount of useful energy. The increased force of hitting the ground from the top rung rather than the lower ones. But once you hit the ground you have no further to fall. In other words, CO2 is a thermodynamic sink. Now, the next run down, rung down from methane is oil. And while oil is a complex mixture, for our simplistic purposes, you can think of it as partially burned methane. So oil still has a lot of potential energy. Falling from that height would hurt. But unlike methane, it's an easily transported liquid at room temperature and pressure. As such, oil serves many purposes for which methane is unsuitable. However, when compared to methane, you have to burn more oil to get the same amount of useful energy, thus producing more CO2 on an equivalent basis. Further down still, you find coal. Coal is even more oxidized than oil, sitting closer to the ground. And it's also quite dirty, filled with all matter of nasty impurities. But coal is cheap and solid. You can literally dig it out of the ground with a pick and shovel, which was done for many decades. 
The lowest rung of the ladder is wood. Wood, like all plant stuff, is the direct product of photosynthesis. So are coal and oil, of course. Wood just died more recently. In a highly inefficient process, nature starts with CO2 and begins to climb the ladder using sunshine as the fuel. But it doesn't get very far. Now, having said that, wood is a fantastic raw material for all kinds of useful stuff, and vegetation is the food that powers all humans, either directly or indirectly. So it makes intuitive sense that if we're using carbon-based materials as a source of energy, we'd want to be on the highest rung possible. That's in fact how societies evolve. Wood burning gives way to coal, which eventually gives way to oil, and then natural gas as societies can afford cleaner environments. Now, natural gas is by far the cleanest burning fuel. You can use it directly in your kitchen without ventilation for a reason. Now, nobody would advise firing up the charcoal barbecue indoors. But what's less well known is the same concept holds if you're using carbon-based materials to make stuff, not just power it. Almost all synthetic materials in modern life start near the top of the ladder and are engineered downward in a controlled burn. And this makes intuitive sense. The embedded energy to run the process is at least partially inherent in the starting material. Certain high-value materials are worth pushing up the ladder to obtain, but the industry evolved the way it did for a reason. It's easier to, slow, easier to slowly slide down than it is to climb up. So, for instance, take polyethylene. That's the highest-volume production plastic in the world. To say polyethylene is ubiquitous is an understatement. Milk jugs, garbage bags, food packaging, wire and cable applications, pipes. Polyethylene is everywhere. Industrially, polyethylene is made by sliding down the ladder. Ethane is converted to ethylene, which is then polymerized. Ethane is close to natural gas on our ladder, while polyethylene has the same inherent energy as oil. And in theory, polyethylene could be made from corn, but then that involves climbing the ladder with big steps. Corn is made from CO2 on the farm and has an energy content close to wood. To make polyethylene from corn, you first need to produce corn ethanol. And ethanol is higher up the ladder than corn, roughly in line with coal, but still much lower than polyethylene. Now, thankfully, the article has some really nice um, visual aids to, to illustrate this. But the idea is that you have to jump yet another full rung, and while it's possible, it simply doesn't make sense, even with substantial government support. We grow corn because we need to eat. We burn ethanol as a minor additive in gasoline because the government tells us to. And even with that level of political support, it still can't take us all the way to polyethylene. Now, so this, this is an interesting explanation, and hopefully you're not lost on it yet. I understand. There's, there's a lot of twists and turns. I really recommend, look at the article, look at the visual aids. When we come back from the break... We're going to relate this to how stuff is made, where stuff comes from. Because, again, this is something we take for granted. Every time you and I go to a big box store, or a small box store for that matter, we look for the items we're looking for, we're grateful when they're there, we grumble when they aren't. But I would say very few of us fully appreciate what it takes to get them there, from raw materials to finished product. This 
is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Still sharing this amazing article that uh, my friend and listener Ruben shared with me. Where stuff comes from. And I got to admit, you know, I, I appreciate, or at least I try to be grateful for, for what I need and what I have. But I've never really stopped to think about all the different things, the choices that have to be made in order to, to get what we need, starting with those basic building blocks. And, and I'm just going to touch on this briefly, and then I'm going to move on. Where does stuff come from? Well, the author here says, as you can probably guess, it mostly comes from unwanted byproducts of the oil and gas industry, very high up that ladder. Take the aforementioned ethane. Many natural gas fields produce what is known as wet gas. And the predominant product is methane, but a little ethane, propane, and heavier cats and dogs are included in the mix. Those impurities are collectively known as natural gas liquids. And they're a critical feedstock that enables much of the chemical industry. So one person's annoying impurity is another's treasured input. Ethylene is fed to a cracker. Now we're talking about a catalytic cracker, which uh, produces ethylene. Ethylene's one of perhaps a half dozen ultra-critical chemicals that form the foundation of virtually all the stuff we make. The author says, I can walk around a city block and perform a retrosynthetic analysis of almost everything I see and find my way back to a cracker. Crackers operate on an almost unimaginable scale. And there's a picture here of ExxonMobil's new cracker. And these are, again, these are catalytic cracking towers. So if you think oil refinery, okay, that's, that's the kind of stuff we're talking about. This cracker in Baytown, Texas is rated for more than 1.5 million tons per year. That's more than 3 billion pounds. And a couple of crackers produce roughly a pound of ethylene per year for every living person on the planet. That's a lot of stuff. Now, as the opening quote from the piece uh, states so well, we live in a time where very few people understand how things get made. And it's fine to not know where stuff comes from, but it isn't fine to not know where stuff come from comes from when you're dictating to the rest of us, here's how the economy ought to run. So in some small way, the author says, I'm hoping this piece will educate a few influential minds to participate in a better informed debate. Why? Okay, here's the payoff. Because we're experiencing the early phases of runaway inflation. On what seems like a daily basis, we observe critical inputs into our economy going vertical in price. If you crimp the supply of critical inputs with no workable plan to replace them, inflation is the unavoidable outcome. Energy is stuff. Energy is life. What's the price elasticity of demand for life, and who can afford to pay it? Nobody could have seen this coming, they'll say. But the author says we did. Good stuff. So here's one of the stranger trends catching on in some circles. Have you heard about this? People who wait until they have been sterilized to have sex. I guess they think this is the responsible thing to do. Annie Holmquist has a piece on intellectualtakeout.org called Choosing Children Over Self-Centered Ambitions. 
And she says, there are plenty of double-take headlines out there. One of them showed up on her desk the other day, courtesy of the Daily Beast. The headline said, meet the people who won't have sex until they're sterilized. Nonchalantly, as if it was the most normal thing in the world, the article laid out the stories of individuals, mostly women, who want nothing to do with children, in the womb or out. And it's not that they dislike children, the article assures us, not at all. Children just aren't the thing for them. And what upsets them is that anyone would question their desire to be sterilized so they never have to bother with little ones. Now, Annie Holmquist says this mindset is probably more prevalent than many realize. We could be staring at a dark future, a demographic winter with miserable old men and women and very few children, sort of like the one envisioned by P.D. James' dystopic dystopic, uh, science fiction novel, The Children of Men. Fantastic movie, by the way. Is there a way out? Well, Annie says there is, but it requires a change in thinking first. Of course, the young people featured in the Daily Beast's article on sterilization appear to be very calm, rational thinkers. They don't believe their desire to be sterilized is irresponsible. In fact, the article's author informs us they feel it's quite responsible, actually, not to complicate a new life by exposing it to their own problems. I think most of us have probably had that conversation with ourselves or maybe with our spouses. Do we really want to bring children into such a messed up world? I recall having that conversation, you know, 28 years ago. And I'm so grateful that my wife and I answered that question with, yeah, let's do it anyway. Life would be so different without without my kids. Fear of climate change is one of the problems cited. Well, the world's overpopulated already. Why fill it with more? Personal character is another challenge. If you know you're lazy and self-centered and you're unlikely to change, why would you subject children to that? Annie Holmquist says those who wish to be sterilized complain that society interprets their desire as evidence of psychological problems. But she says it's not mental illness, really. It's just the result of propaganda that's fed continually to young people, young women especially, via schools, the media, politicians, and yes, sometimes even their own grandparents and parents. She says our society has bought into the lie that self-fulfillment is the end goal. Women are told that they need to go to college, many, many years of college during their most fertile years, in order to have a career, and that such a career is the only way to satisfaction. They're told that they can have motherhood too, but Only one day when they're well-established career-wise and financially, maybe around age 40. Now, those who follow up this plan realize too late that the chances of pregnancy are slim at that age. She says, when women do attain motherhood earlier in life, they're made to feel that their work raising children is not worthy. That motherhood is a pain, a chore which will age them early, and that their own personal well-being is more important to cultivate and nurture rather than the life of a child. It's something Alex Riley explores in a recent article for Chronicles magazine while discussing Jordan Peterson's latest book, Beyond Order. Peterson excoriates the destructive taboo in contemporary American society on telling young people, especially young women, the full truth about having children. Riley writes, as a result, motherhood becomes an afterthought, a hobby almost, with women sometimes dismissing it altogether, unaware of how their priorities will likely shift later when it may be too late to act on the change, largely because they've been trained to be self-focused. And then Riley offers a prescription for this problem. Quote, 
we should expect that 25-year-olds do not understand themselves or life particularly well. But society's elders know better. Yet despite this knowledge, these elders continue to teach young people beliefs that will likely come back to haunt them later in life. This is a condemnable cultural crime. End quote. So Annie Holmquist says, how do we prevent this scenario where young adults want to be sterilized, where young people in general wait until it's too late to have children? And her answer is that the older generation must change its mindset first. And by older generation, that means everybody from age 40 on up. We need to be the ones telling our children that marriage and family are good and honorable things that they should be seeking after. We ourselves need to be modeling this attitude, welcoming children ourselves, and praising those who sacrifice career and self to pursue the high calling of raising the next generation right. She says enough with the propaganda that selfish ambitions are the goal of life. It's time to realize that selfish sacrifice in raising the next generation is the best gift that we can give ourselves and society in general. I sure love her take on stuff. And this, this is no exception. Do you see people around you who, you know, have those, those concerns about, uh, well, I don't want to bring kids into the world. It's going to interfere with my career path or it's going to, you know, just subject the world's limited resources to more demands. I don't see a lot of people like that, but I do know some who, who have that. I don't know. I, I'm just one guy, and certainly I don't have all the answers, but as I reflect on the things that, uh, that most people spend their time being upset about, it's pretty clear to me that the things that we allow to upset us, for the most part, are usually things that don't really matter that much in the long run. And this is probably just the old gray-haired man talking here, you know, that uh, has come to this realization. But the stuff that actually does have value, the things that matter right up to and even through the end of life, almost always seem to come back to family. I remember asking an old friend this question a few years ago, uh, not knowing that he would pass away the very next day. I knew that his time was short, but I asked him, Jim, you know, you, you may be an atheist, but uh, what do you think the purpose of life is? And his answer was very revealing. He said, it's love. It's to love and to be loved. I think he was right. And I think we'd all be happier if we could make that connection and focus on the stuff that actually does matter. This is The Brian Hyde Show.